Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Scroll with your weekly Not Activism Wrap-Up. Welcome back after a week of us being away from the news. We've got a lot to cover. In the meantime, also, be sure to check out the deep dive that Bushido did on the Quillette quote-unquote journalist Andy No last week. It is quite a journey. Today, we're going to be talking about cop stuff, which covers another a town hall, another shooting that happened, uh, protester rules, and yet another failure of Jackie Lacey to prosecute some pretty clear wrongdoing. Uh, we're also going to be talking about climate stuff, including new li- wildfire liability uh, coverage bit that just made it through the state assembly and Senate and was just signed by Governor Newsom a couple of hours before we recorded this. Protesters potentially getting paid... Uh, Uh, and a massive conflict of interest that was uncovered regarding fracking permits in the state. Um, We're also going to be talking about some tenant stuff, hooray for some extraordinarily limited rent control, and then a fun reading series about how the housing crisis is merely a figment of our collective imagination. How's it going, Bushido? Uh, It's going pretty well. It is, I'm going to say, like Phoenix is hot. Everyone knows this, right? Like it's, it's, it's hot. That's what Phoenix is known for. Yes. That and like Republicans. (laughs) Uh, And so it is, but it's been especially hot. Like we're going to have like five days in a row over 110, which is like kind of pushing it because we get this really cool like heat island effect with all of the, the concrete that just absorbs heat all day and then radiates it back at you. So riding my bike has been a lot of fun. Uh, but on that, that topic, absolutely miserable. Yeah. No, well, thank, thank the Buddha for AC. I'll, I'll just say that like, it's a terrible, like <laughs> waste of energy and is incredibly expensive. Uh, but at the same time, like, Oh my Buddha, AC is really good when it's 112 out. Uh, but one of the fun I can, places yeah. I, I rode my bike was to go to a, a town hall with a DNC chairman, Tom Perez, uh, that was hosted by the Arizona Dems, as well as uh, the organizing core, which is like the Democrats' new 50-state strategy where they're trying to recruit young people to be like Democratic Party organizers and get young people to vote. Uh, as part of this 50-state strategy, they're rolling out the organizing core in five states, so they still are trying to figure out what a 50-state strategy... What, yeah. what about the other 45 states? You know what? Don't ask those questions, Chris. Just just love the, <laughs> just love the tagline. Um, but uh, Tom Perez was there. Uh, he was also there with uh, Arizona State Representative Jennifer Longden, who's actually my state representative uh, here in Legislative District 24, uh, State Senator Tony Navarrete, uh, and then Arizona Family Health Partnership CEO Bree Thomas. And the the, the Arizona Ooh, the Arizona Family Health Partnership uh, is kind of like our uh, women's health and reproductive health uh, sort of private public model that we have here in Arizona. Okay. Uh, the the town hall overall wasn't very town holly. Like everyone got to speak a little bit, and then Tom Perez spoke a lot. And then there were a few questions. They were screened by the Arizona Dems before they were asked. Like, nobody got to stand up and ask a question. All of the questions they asked were, like, complete softballs. Like, just absolutely ridiculous softballs. But my main takeaway from Tom Perez was he's not as uncharismatic as I would have assumed. Like, the guy actually knows how to work a friendly room. Uh, But that being said, he's pretty weak on everything. Like his main talking points were we need Democratic Party unity. The Democrats aren't nearly as divided as everyone thinks they are, which is really weird to me because like John Hickenlooper drinks fracking water and Bernie backs the Green New Deal. So saying they're functionally the same is uh, a stretch to say the least. Uh, The other thing that really weirded me out and like I talk about this a lot. I'm diabetic. So as somebody who's disabled, 
disability visibility matters a lot to me, especially as somebody with a, an invisible disability. And mm -hmm. uh, Jennifer Longden, who's actually my state rep, is mobility impaired. And when they were talking about how the Democratic Party is like great and super diverse, they kept talking about LGBTQ yeah. stats, which, you know, is good. Uh, race stats, you know, like we have a very diverse party. Like yeah. when you look at us, mm -hmm. we have, you know, black, brown, Asian, everything. And that that's all cool. But nobody talked about disability as anything other than an economic thing. Like when they talked about disability, it was just, oh, it costs you a lot of money. And by costing yeah. you a lot of money, it makes it harder for you to be an effective worker. And it was oh, weird to me because I was like, that seems like a diversity category we should be talking about, especially when there's a woman in a wheelchair on the effing panel and no one's talking about that. And the other thing that got me was this young organizer from Organizing Court like gave the kind of intro speech and talked about how she was diagnosed with a chronic illness. She didn't say what it was, uh, but went about how that became really expensive and insurance premiums were a lot and didn't mention like, hey, I'm also a disabled person up here with a platform. So that all rubbed me very much the wrong way. Uh, Tom Perez, like, I think my favorite moment was he tried to sell the case that the ACA gets us 90% of the way up the mountain to, like, universal health care coverage. And Wait. Yeah, hold on. One, one of the guys from Medicare for All Arizona just yelled, no, it doesn't. And Tom Perez immediately backed down <laughs> and said, okay, we're like 50% of the way up the mountain. And then like more people yelled at him like, no, that doesn't make any sense. And so Tom Perez <laughs> literally said, you know, we're some of the way up the mountain. And I was like, that's the oh, Democratic okay. Party tagline for 2020. You know, we're a an undefined, non-trivial amount of the way up the oh, mountain. no. And we're all going to die. Yeah, no, I really, like, I walked away from this kind of disheartened, not just because, like, I felt like they missed some really easy you know, um, uh, points to make as far as like yeah. why Democrats are good, but their main selling point on why they want better healthcare coverage is everybody wants to be a productive worker and not having healthcare coverage makes it harder for you to be a productive worker. And so That's, we have to sell the fiscal uh, argument. And it was weird no. because like, I don't just want to be a productive worker. Like I'd like to live yeah. a full life outside of work, but also everyone was so afraid of being called an actual Democrat that they just sold themselves as like GOP light. And it was really disheartening because that's not going to work. And you know, at some point, uh, Jennifer Longden and Tom Perez both made the point that uh, the, the Democrats keep making very good studied cases with data and numbers about why our positions are correct and why we're doing the right thing. And the GOP doesn't do that. They just rely on their ideology and yet the democrats keep losing and i was like well there there's your effing answer like yeah. run on your ideology uh tom Perez also came out swinging part. against socialism which i almost got myself kicked oh, out over uh but I, I decided to to stay there and live tweet the entire thing if you want to check it out uh at the end there was a disruptive direct action but tom perez had already left and so right. like as the whole thing was wrapping That's up some people jumped on chairs and chanted for medicare for all and i was like okay, you need to stop being so polite. Like, do this in the middle of the town hall, not the mm -hmm. end of the town hall. There's no, like, you should have interrupted Tom Perez's speech. Who cares if they kick you out? Like, these are a bunch of people who just told me as a disabled person that, you know, they only want to make me healthier so that I can work for a billionaire better. So, you know, all in all, I was just kind of like, the, the Democrats oh. have a chance to turn Arizona blue. Uh, they're probably going to miss it because they're running this centrist playbook. Like, oh no, we're not actually on the left. And it's like, no, you should just like lead with your left foot. Like do that, but they're not going to. They're, are we gonna? We're already gonna be called socialists no matter what we do. So we might as just you know 
Well, and also it's the better policy. Like if you want to talk about which policies work better, it's like, look at the standard of living and like happiness indexes for Europe. And like people there are way happier, live longer, have more money. Geez, I wonder why. Maybe it's because they, they (laughs) defeated their kind of like right wing ideology a while ago while we're letting it sit in the white house and hold social media summits. Uh, but yeah, it was, that was kind of a nutty one. Um, to shift gears real quick, uh, at the top, uh, court watch, which is a program where people go to, uh, basically like just sit in on court proceedings and kind of write down what's going on and then report it back to the people. Uh, it's been going on in NYC for a while. The national lawyers guild, ACLU of Southern California, the UCLA national lawyers guild and ground game LA are going to be starting a court watch program in LA. Uh, there's a training going down on, uh, uh, July 16th. Uh, you can check Facebook for that. We'll be sharing it out through Knock and Ground Game and uh, my Twitter account so you can sign up for that. There's going to be, I, I think, a lot of people interested in this. So there will be more than one training. But if you want to like shine a light on the broken criminal justice system we have or even just see how broken it is, this is going to be something to get in on. And it could be a seismic shift in the way LA courts work because most people don't understand how court works. Most people of privilege will never step foot in a court, will never have that experience um, and getting people to understand just how broken and stupid the system is, is, you know, the first step in beginning to disentangle ourselves from it. So uh, keep an eye on that one. Uh, you also, uh, yeah. you did some fun well, stuff this week. In before, before we move oh, over yeah, to yeah. the stuff I got to, uh, just from a personal note, I, I went and participated in like a preliminary court watch prototype thing that we did. It's just like one day where we all, we all happen to have been at the court for court support for one of our friends. And we basically decided that seeing as the, the court support ended up being largely unnecessary because they just kind of put the charges on hold. It was just a, yep, you appeared. Congratulations. Here's your paperwork. We may or may not decide to prosecute you at some point in the future. Uh, we decided to make the most of it and stick around and actually go and see what it is that our court system actually looks like and how it functions. And it was incredibly elucidating, like going in there and sitting in the, in the courtroom, having to turn off your cell phone, having to like realize, oh, I did not bring a notepad and a pen to just sit here and take notes, uh, was fascinating. You're not allowed to bring any kind of an electronic recording device into the room. You, yep. you have to do everything by hand. And you're sitting in the back and you're just basically watching and everyone's kind of wondering why you're there. Uh, so it'd be really cool to to see like the the kind of thing that I think uh, New York City uh, does where they all wear a specific color of T-shirt. Mm. And that makes it extremely obvious to the judges that they're being watched, which has the same kind of an impact apparently on uh, not so nice judges that the street watch folks have on the police that accompany the sanitation sweeps. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, ultimately to we're a higher standard of, of accountability. Yeah. Well, ultimately we're all social beings. Like people yeah, don't exactly. like feeling singled out. They don't like feeling watched, especially when they're trying to get away with stuff that they know they're going to be yeah. judged harshly for. Yep. But it was, it was fascinating to get to sit down and actually see what was going on. And I mean, the judge that I went and, and stopped in on because I had no idea what was going on and we didn't know which judges to be looking out for. Uh, she was fantastic and she was making every accommodation possible uh, to the uh, the homeless guy who was dealing with uh, some kind of a drug related uh, sent a, a, a ticket that he got for for possessing drugs in some position on a in a uh, in a parking lot somewhere in Koreatown. Like it was 
overall a, a, a fascinating look into how the system works. And it's kind of weirdly just like this machine that just keeps churning and it goes really quickly for a lot of things for these low level offenses that I was shocked by how fast things got resolved. Like I expected yeah. court dates to take like hours and hours and like we watched like three cases get handled in 20 minutes. Oh yeah. Nuts. And, and um, those can sometimes have lifelong consequences for someone like that. Yes. All those decisions happen very, very quickly and it's scary to see. Yes. It really is. So, but anyway, yeah, the, uh, getting back to what happened this week. Um, so by the way, sign up for court watch. If you're interested, it's fascinating. You'll learn a lot and you're doing a good thing. Um, so this week I made it down to the port of Los Angeles on Thursday morning, uh, at for a seven 30 AM rally, uh, that was being hosted by ILWU local 13. Uh, it was basically a follow-up to the showing that we had at Los Angeles city hall a couple of weeks ago when, uh, Joe Buscaino and Mike Bonin had introduced a measure to basically veto the port of Los Angeles's, uh, commissioners, Harbor commissioners, uh, vote to enable, Maersk and uh, APM terminal uh, to move forward with this uh, automation process that they've been they've been you know chomping at the bit to get going on, and so this was the follow up to that, and uh, we showed up at seven thirty. We had some amazing speeches from uh, Gary Herrera, who is a fantastic public speaker, and that it was just great to watch him work in front of that crowd of all of his union guys oh, and, uh, real quick, and everyone else. Yeah. Real quick clarification. Uh, ILWU, what union is that? Like, who are they representing? Oh, they, they, they represent the dock workers, the longshoremen, like the folks that unload the cargo ships. And uh, they're great. Their, their logo also, by the way, is one of the most uh, fantastic logos I've ever seen. It's like the, the hand with the, uh, the, the spike that's used, the hook that's used for, uh, used to be used for unloading cargo off of ships back when they were more of a manual job and less of a crane operated uh, situation. But anyway, there, was, there were hundreds of folks. If you've ever seen footage from the port of LA when like they're doing their thing and like empty a massive cargo ship in a matter of hours, like it is a it's complicated, crazy. insane dance. Yeah. And all those guys have a, a precise amount of technical knowledge to make that happen. And like Gary Herrera pointed out, like the port of LA is setting records year over year over year for the amount of work they're doing. Now, there are some questions to be asked about like how good that is for our environment, but like that to the side, like those longshoremen kick some ass doing their job. Absolutely. They know exactly what they're doing. Um, so we, we, we turned out there, there was a, uh, a Bernie contingent that was there to show some solidarity. Uh, there were folks from UTLA, uh, a bunch of folks from other unions as well. And we all showed up, stood there, chanted in, in solidarity, uh, and then marched uh, a few blocks down to the commissioner's hearing and uh, filled that hall. It was, it's a huge hall and it was full of folks that gave, we, there were more than four hours of testimony, angry, angry testimony, demanding that the board of commissioners uh, actually, you know, respect the fact that it is public land and it needs to be used for the best good for the community, not just the good of APM terminals and Maersk. Like this yeah. was a, a heartfelt uh, testimony from one person after another, after another, after another for hours. Yep. And then at the end of the day, the uh, 
the Harbor Commissioners, of course, voted exactly the same way they did the first time around, which authorized APM terminals to continue with their automation process. So well, and, and, it was, and Maersk had even argued beforehand that they, yeah, they didn't, it didn't yeah. matter what the, the yeah. city council ordered because there was like 60% of this automation they could do without any sort of feedback yep. because it was like a different kind of automation. Um, but they, they basically even said like, we'll just ignore what the LA city council tells us anyways, and we'll just do this in a couple of years. So uh, Maersk has a plan to do this no matter what anyone tells them, which just kind of shows you where their loyalties lie. And spoiler alert, it's with the shareholders. So it kind of feels like maybe a strike might be called for at this point, but we'll see what happens. Uh, overall, though, I mean, that I, I would gotta fuck say, some stuff up. Yeah, it would. Um, but I got to say, like, if you guys that are listening to this, if you've never been to any kind of like a strike action or a big union solidarity action, get out there. It is, there's so much energy. There is so much camaraderie and solidarity. It is a fantastic experience. Uh, it is infectious and I cannot recommend it enough. You just got to go out there and experiencing it for yourself and see what it's all about. And it's, it's, this is just reifying my, my, uh, core belief that every person deserves a union straight up end of story. Well, and it's also one of those things where this is how we actually like build towards a better future because, you know, for a lot of folks that are in labor, they're kind of skeptical of environmentalism. They're skeptical of like the oh, yeah, the absolutely. more leftist, like socialist uh, DSA uh, contingent mm-hmm. that's been growing recently because they don't understand us and we don't really understand them. And the way you build those bridges is just by showing up and introducing yourself and talking to folks. At. Exactly. And uh, you're going to have the chance to do that uh, when UFCW possibly goes on strike in like two weeks, depending on on how those negotiations work out. And, uh, you know, if you cross the picket line to go to Ralph's, uh, that's a really bad thing. Don't do that. that. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, grow your own food. Go to a grocery store that doesn't treat their workers like crap. But yeah, the farmer's markets, uh, the little bodegas, uh, hell, even Trader Joe's pays like good wages and good benefits. Uh, Costco. Costco is actually surprisingly good to their workers. But yeah, Yeah. when uh, when you're thinking like, hey, I need to go get myself a broiler chicken from Ralph's. uh, If UFCW is on strike, just forego that and maybe get yourself some tofu at the the local farmer's market. Uh, But you're going to have a chance to do this soon. Uh, But let's go ahead and move on to our favorite, least favorite. Oh, sorry. Before we move on, this last thing, like with the ILWU, part of that solidarity that we're talking about building, it was fantastic. I got down there with Becca and John from Sun rise and they were able to stick around and give testimony um and it was uh, fantastic getting to show up and have folks who are there talking about a green new deal alongside these workers hearing that testimony over and over again at these kinds of union actions is going to be so incredibly important as we move forward getting unions and labor onto the side of the green new deal because like what you just mentioned earlier, Bushido, Garcetti totally poisoned the well when it comes to uh, the interactions between like Green New Deal supporters and union supporters, specifically with IBEW. And it's going to take a lot to overcome that. And showing up and saying, no, we want to see a just transition is going to be key to actually building the support and getting the unions on board and making sure that we can actually build the future that we know we need. And yep. it's it was it was great having them down there. Uh, thank you very much to both Rebecca and John for showing up. 
and uh, yeah, let's just keep doing this. So anyway, back to and, the, well, uh, I was gonna I was gonna say program. Well, I was gonna say you you know Garcetti making a misstep. I mean that doesn't sound like him. That doesn't sound like the mayor <laughs> boy that I know. Our special boy. <laughs> yeah, and let's uh, you know what that's actually a good a good uh, segue for us because our special boy loves to protect his special gun toting boys, uh, and they have had. <sighs> quite the week. Uh, so let's go ahead and start off by talking about uh, America's least favorite sheriff, uh, Alex Villanueva, uh, who swept into office on a wave of progressive support and then immediately took <laughs> off the mask and was like, nope, I'm here to protect the deputies and let them get away with all of the crimes and also not Ignore understand how to do PR or things. anything. So oh, yeah. let's talk about his town hall event. Yeah, so this past Wednesday, July 10th, uh, LA, County LA County Sheriff Alex Villanueva held a town hall event at Garfield High School in East Los Angeles. I was able to attend it. It was right after the weekly Jackie Lacey protest in front of the Hall of Justice, or rather the Hall of Injustice, uh, that is held, again, every single week for more than 93, I think it's, this is our 93rd week that this has been going yeah. on. Um, and so I apologize. My voice is still pretty shot from that because there was a lot of shouting going on. Um, anyway, so this event had initially been scheduled for sometime next week, but the sheriff moved up the date of the event with only a couple of days notice. It really did feel like the change in dates may have been associated with a fear of a high turnout at the event, specifically of family members of folks who had been shot and killed by sheriff's deputies. But if that had been the intention, the plan was thoroughly foiled. A significant portion, probably around a third of the folks that were there in the audience, uh, were there just to demand answers from the sheriff to hold him accountable as to why his deputies continued to kill young black and brown men with uh, impunity. One of the families that was present had actually just lost one of their loved ones just a couple of weeks before, and it was it, it was extremely raw. And um, that was that was the shooting over in in Boyle Heights, right? Like about yeah. a, a week, two weeks ago. Yep. And I was, I, I live streamed the whole thing. So if you want to see just how, like, I'm, I'm not trying to like turn this into some kind of a, a like exploitative situation here, but the, the raw grief of these families is incredibly moving. And if you have any doubt about how broken our system is, watch that live stream and tell me that those families have not been completely fucked over by this system. Just, yeah. just watch it. It is, it is heartbreaking. Uh, the emotions were incredibly high. The, the moderator who was there was just awful. Like she just could not keep her mouth shut when it came to talking about like injecting her own stories that were not particularly relevant and definitely not welcome in that situation. Um, ooh, some of the, ooh. some of the other families, it was, it was extremely uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. she ended up apologizing, uh, for one of her comments that was totally out of line. Um, but the families who she deeply insulted with what she said, were just like, no, we do not accept your apology. You need to get off the stage. And she, yeah. did not. Yeah. um, one of the other families that had been there, uh, had actually lost, uh, their son, brother, uncle, nephew, like the whole extended family was there. He had been shot, uh, multiple times over, uh, at this point, it's just, they're coming up on the one year anniversary and they're still 
waiting for an official explanation of what happened. They were basically told initially that there had been crossfire and that he had been caught in the crossfire, but then they ended up getting a, a leaked copy of the postmortem, and it showed that all of the bullets had been entered into his back, meaning that he did not, he was not caught in a crossfire. He was just gunned down. And in, yeah. there was also uh, at least one bullet that was removed from the back of his head. So yeah. the, it was, it was intense. Um, it was, uh, there, there were a bunch of also like really super softball questions that were all about like marijuana usage in public, which was really weird. And like, how do we keep our kids off drugs in schools? And they basically were, were filler questions that were meant to eat up like a whole bunch of time. But most of the folks who were asking questions were having none of it and yep. just constantly interrupted Villanueva for very, very good reason. And it was, oh man, it was intense. Um, but uh, hopefully some good will come out of this. There were lots of connections that were made after the fact between activists and uh, the families of victims. And we're hopefully something will come out of this, but man, that it was, it was incredibly disheartening to see just how much, how many platitudes Villanueva was going to throw at people with like no actual consequences for it. And it, it was, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful it's, that we'll be able to hold him to account at some point and hold those deputies to account at some point. But man, it is just an uphill struggle right now. No, every time I've gone to the rallies at the Hall of Justice, which I was pretty, you know, pr uh, a regular at when I was, was still in L.A., and yeah. it is emotionally draining, like for families Extreme. that are there every week for the people who, who hold the rally, especially Black Lives Matter L.A., and they always bring the people who MC, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Dr. Melina Abdullah and Baba Akili. Uh, I don't understand how they have the emotional depth to do that week after week, because after like two or three weeks going in a row, I would have to take yes. a week off because yeah. it really really affects you and it's really it, it, you feel almost powerless especially when you hear stories like john horton who was beaten to death in jail and then it was ruled a suicide and it took his family nearly a decade to get the actual autopsy report um you know or the anaheim shooting of uh, hannah williams the 17 year old who was killed on the 91 that they're still trying to figure out what happened there her family is crowdfunding for uh, her funeral because the police don't pay for your funeral after they kill you. The family still has to bear that burden. It's just kind of dumping stuff on families. And then when you get into the realm of lawsuits and liability, the city and the county have a reason to not give you the autopsy report, a reason to keep that secret. And it just makes it harder and harder on the families. Uh, and it, it, you can understand why people have gotten very angry and why people don't trust the police. Yeah. And when the police talk about like, oh, there's a trust deficit with the community and that's the community's that's fault, like, how that's no. just the absolute wrong way to read this. And Villanueva is just not doing himself any favors. You know, this was supposed to be a, a bridge building exercise and oh, he's yeah, just not was. a very articulate guy. He, no. he did speak some Spanish up there, which I think he tries to show that <laughs> off from time to time. To show that you know his, his Spanish is like grade school enough that I could completely understand everything that he was saying and caught his yep. mistakes as he caught them. It was kind of fun, actually. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. well, that was that was his other thing. Is he he was like uh, when he got elected, he's like, I'm the first sheriff in a century that speaks Spanish, and then you hear him speak Spanish, <laughs> and you're like, eh, 
okay. Um, yeah, you'll pass. You'll get like a three on the AP test. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. But (laughs) you know, definitely not a native speaker, and definitely not somebody who runs in the circles of the people that his police are policing. Especially when it comes to deputies, like the LA County Sheriff's deputies are basically the government in a lot of unincorporated LA. Uh, But before we go too far off on that one, uh, let's talk about uh, what happened on July fourth, because there was a, a shootout in South LA which was absolutely wild uh, and it involved an SUV that belonged to a rapper whose name escapes me but the rapper wasn't actually involved in the the chase it was a a car that belonged to a company that he owns or owns shares in Um, but I saw this one pop up on TMZ and it just sounds reckless and crazy so let's let's cover these details so on the 4th of July there was a running gun battle and I do mean like an actual running gun battle between sheriff's deputies and a purportedly armored black SUV. The shootout started at the corner of Spruce Street and Aranbe Avenue in Compton, where deputies were initially fired upon with a high-powered rifle, and then they returned fire. According to the sheriff who talked about this actually at the town hall in East LA, the weapon that was used in the weapon in question was an an AK-47. It was also used, they believe, to fire upon the helicopter that ended up joining in on the pursuit later after the first shots were exchanged. After the pursuit ended, which uh, it you know went from Compton, got onto the 105 freeway, ended up in Englewood. Uh, the driver and a passenger, and potentially more, but they think it was just the two of them, attempted to make a run for it after ditching the car. One of them was caught, the other one escaped and remains at large, at least at the time of this recording. Um, but at the end of all of it, after the dust settled, they actually found the body of Ricky Cornell, uh, age 65, who lived in Compton, uh, which was found, and his body was found near the corner where the initial shooting took place. He had suffered multiple gunshot wounds and was pronounced dead at the scene. Uh, at the town hall, Sheriff Villanueva mentioned that Cornell's body only had bullets from the AK-47 and did not actually have any shots from the deputies' weapons, uh, which implies that the shooting of Cornell actually took place before the deputies engaged with the SUV, though the specific details on that, of course, have not been uh, uncovered at this point, and we probably won't really know all of the details for some time into the future. Yeah, and it, the the SUV belonged to the rapper YG, who apparently was was recording at the uh, like when the shooting happened. And the story is a little bit crazier uh, because they they don't know what the motive was for shooting at the deputies because yeah. I guess they were on a call looking for someone else, like they were uh, doing a felony warrant service or something like that. And when they got to the place that they were going, they just kind of got like ambushed by the guy in the SUV, and it just seems like. A, a crazy turn of events, uh, but one that wasn't made any safer by the actions of the deputies. Um, you know, I can understand like getting shot at and that being scary, uh, but then returning fire in a crowded public place and then engaging in a high speed chase that went across town uh, just seemed to to you know make this even more dangerous. And we've seen this it's kill people. Happening. Like Malaya yeah. Carrado was killed at the Trader Joe's uh, up in Silver Lake in a very similar situation, and like. You know, that it's, it's, well, and it's, it, yeah, it was, but it, it's also one where like, 
when we have helicopters and we have, you know, the ability to do parallel yeah. pursuits and we have the ability to like keep an eye on somebody who's acting like a legitimate danger to the community, there are ways to deescalate this and keep the public safe. And it doesn't seem like that's how the deputies or LAPD prioritize these sort of things. It gets to be this very Rambo mindset. And we've yeah. talked about that before where like the, the police, when they get into this like targeted mindset, begin shooting back. And maybe that's not the best answer. Like maybe answering bullets with bullets is not the best way to de-escalate and keep everyone safe. Um, it, at this point, it it looks like uh, Ricky Cornell was the only fatality. I think there were some reports that a couple of other people may or may not have been wounded, uh, maybe from shrapnel and stuff, because there was yeah, a lot of bullets of, fired in a very short amount of time. A, a graze on his arm and shoulder um, from a shot from that AK-47. But yeah, it yeah. was fortunate. No, it sounds, yeah, it sounds scary. It definitely does, but it's very fortunate that not that more, more people were not injured in this. But again, like the the lack of consideration for public safety that seems to you know not there the the, the <laughs> we gotta deescalate when when this kind of stuff happens when somebody just opens fire on deputies in an SUV. It's completely absurd and it shouldn't happen. But at the same time, like the deputies returning fire like that and then chasing and having more gunshots returned as they continued to to pursue is just absurd. Like do the the helicopter, they're not going to be able to shoot down the helicopter with an AK-47. The helicopter is able to follow the car no matter where they go. And the helicopter there, are the sheriff's deputies have a lot of helicopters one helicopter, if they run out of fuel somehow, they can replace it with another one. They can pick up the chase. Like, I mean, they've no got way. dozens of helicopters. Exactly. There's no way that they're going to be able to get away with this. You can just back off and let these people, you know, not feel so damn pressured to put everybody else's lives at risk and just going crazy like Grand Theft Auto down these, like like GTA style down these roads, putting in all these pedestrians and, and you know innocent bystanders at risk. It's, it's absurd. It needs to stop. And I don't know how we can get them to actually implement de-escalation in their uh, standard operating procedure, but they keep saying they're doing it, and then this shit happens, and it's absurd. It just... Uh, yeah. No, I mean, and we're, I, unfortunately, we're going to have more of these to talk about. Um, looking into my magic crystal ball, uh, the cops in L.A. aren't going to settle down. So, it, you know, every year we're going to hear about another supervisor. I mean, every year every is even a stretch, like every couple of shit. weeks. Yeah. And, you know, we we see this on the, the weekly news um, because we have like three local news stations in L.A. Yep. that as soon as a chase starts, they get that helicopter up in the Ooh, air and follow it and a uh, useful city or police that people trust. And speaking of trusting the police, uh, let's talk about the new protest. Well, not even new protest rules, but so uh, Michael Kohlhaas. Yeah, Michael Kohlhaas is the uh, pen name of an investigative journalist uh, in Los mm -hmm. Angeles who's been doing some really good work, uh, made the LA Times, <laughs> not for the first time, but this was the biggest story he's broken, uh, releasing those Uncovered LAUSD like charter school memos that basically showed Austin Butner coordinating directly with charter school proponents in order to like give them a leg up in negotiations and kind of make sure that charters can continue to privatize right. our, our public education. Uh, but so he released a memo mm -hmm. from the city attorney office to LAPD and other police departments in the city about how they can successfully arrest protesters. So let's talk about that one. 
Yeah. So uh, let me just read the headline here because <laughs> I, I, I do want to say this. So I, I actually asked Kohlhaas about this and he was basically like, look, that's WordPress's default. And I don't know enough about technology to make that not happen <laughs> and is kind of too lazy to do it. So this is just going to be his headline style guide, uh, which is just basically a super wordy <laughs> header. But, you know, it's sort it's of on purpose graph. and it's sort of just because like uh, he doesn't feel like changing it. Um, but it has become like I, I, I now know, like without even reading the entire article, you get about half the article just in the header. Exactly. So, quote, in the wake of federal lawsuits against the city of Los Angeles for its outrageous, unsupportable, illegal pretextual arrests at 2014 protests over the murder of Michael Brown, city attorney Michael Fuhrer issued detailed confidential case filing guidelines explaining precisely which crimes to arrest protesters for and exactly what information had to be in the police reports in order to prosecute successfully, which looks to the even mildly cynical eye as a list of suggested lies for the cops to include. And here, friends, is a copy of Fuhrer's confidential report, all 18 pages of it, and special bonus, LAPD enforcement guides for LAMC 55.07, which regulates how big your signs can be at protests and forbids glass bottles, among other things. And yes, that is exactly the text of the headline, word for word. <laughs> yep. And it's it's quite an interesting read. It's pretty long. Like It's an 18-page memo to the cops. And this sort of like LAMC 5507 uh, is the protest rules that LA City Council passed a while ago that have still not actually been tried out in court. But these are the rules that stop you from taking perfectly legal things like a wooden pole or glass bottles or something that LA City has determined could be a weapon to a protest. And that's kind of problematic because... You don't give up your First Amendment rights when you walk into a protest. So L.A. City Council is saying, hey, you can't take your kombucha bottle to a protest. Uh, if somebody gets arrested and charged with that, there's probably going to be a court battle and probably like sending it all the way up the chain to the straight Supreme Court to determine whether or not that's actually something legal for them to do. Uh, but uh, before I get too far into that tangent, because I'll, I'll touch on it again at the, at the end. Yeah. Let's talk about this freaking memo because it is pretty like here's the thing is this wasn't supposed to be publicly released. So this <laughs> no, is them saying the quiet part loud because they didn't think anyone was listening. Yep. You know, this was only supposed to go to the cops. Yeah, and so it has uh, some very telling language in it. Like the first paragraph says, quote, the department has placed a high priority on ensuring that when arrests are affected as part of an incident management strategy, that successful prosecutions God, result. Promise. So arrests are supposed to lead to a prosecution. That's the point of the cops arresting you. It's not just like to stop you. It's not just to get you off the street. They want to make sure that they can prosecute you. Uh, from there, it, it goes down kind of into the nitty gritty of how you as like a foot patrol officer are supposed to report this up the chain and write your reports in the, in, you know, the, the correct way so that the prosecutors, the, the city's attorney's office or the district attorney's office can successfully turn the arrest into jail time or a fine or community service, some sort of a conviction. Uh, it then lists uh, let me count here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, Jesus. thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. It lists sixteen charges that police kind of can can choose from that will most likely result in a successful prosecution. Uh, these uh, these include. 
Yeah, these include PC-69, which is disobeying an officer uh, by use of threats or violence, uh, PC-148A, resisting slash delaying or obstructing a police officer, uh, PC-242 slash 243B, which is, is battery that, on a police officer. The one that you officer. just mentioned, that's if you sit down and refuse to comply. And like if you sit yep. down and you cross your legs and you put your arms in front of you, that's resisting arrest, even if you're not actually, you know, resisting. You're just yep. passively non-complying. Uh, other ones oh, that are man. on here are uh, PC-647C, which is obstructing a thoroughfare. So if you block a street or block a freeway, which is a very common protest tactics. Yep. Uh, they also have some vehicle code violations in here, such as VC-2800A, disobeying a police officer. Um, oh, and then my favorite, because this one actually was tried against PM Beers. Uh, and this is uh, directly connected to the prosecutions that caused this memo to be written. PM Beers uh, is a very uh, uh, prolific filmer of the police and of police commission meetings. She is at a lot of actions. She is at a lot of police oversight meetings, uh, just basically pointing her camera at the people in power and making sure that that gets documented. But they tried to take her to court on this one, which is VC 21954. Pedestrians outside a crosswalk blocking a street is an infraction. So basically, like if you, uh, you know, walk in the street because your protest is too big to only be contained to the sidewalk, that could get you arrested. Uh, then there are some uh, municipal code ones, which is uh, like LAMC 41.18, a, uh, sorry, LAMC 41.18A, which is annoy, molest, obstruct, interfere with the free passage of pedestrians. So, uh, you know, apparently bird scooters are just doing that all the freaking time, but they're never getting arrested. Uh, there's LAMC 56.45E, which is a demonstration at a private residence. Uh, just in case you feel like showing up at your landlord's place, remember you can't actually be on their lawn. You have to stay to the public sidewalk. Mm. But so basically this is a smorgasbord for a police officer to uh, choose from to figure out like what they want to charge you with. Uh, right after that, it says, it, and it has this in asterisks and in all bold, cannot stress the importance of video in a mass arrest situation. So remember, the police have video teams. A lot of them are wearing oh, body yeah. cameras. Those aren't really there for accountability. It's them collecting evidence. They also then run the video that they collect through algorithms to do like facial recognition. Um, the, the video is used to train uh, AI algorithms and other like machine learning protocols on how to identify people. Like this is all stuff that is happening in our city uh, and we're paying, you know, millions if not billions of dollars a year to companies like Palantir to help us uh, ramp up those capabilities. LAPD Spine has been doing a lot of work on that one. But yeah, so, so basically this entire memo is a how-to guide for cops to arrest you because you're uh, demanding that your rights be respected and then to make sure that you get convicted of it, which is very much in line with LAPD and the LA City Attorney's Office take on like you exercising free speech. Um, there's nothing you can really do to guard yourself against this one. Like they, they say that there's supposed to be a threat of violence or force, but again, police can just feel threatened and that becomes a threat. Like you don't actually have to say something threatening to them for a police officer to feel threatened and then have a reason to arrest you. Uh, it's also something where the police are trying to sharpen the spear so that as they're anticipating more arrests and they're anticipating more civil disobedience, they're not wasting their time arresting you and just having to let you go. They're arresting you and able to bring the hammer of the law down upon you. So I expect that we'll probably be seeing, you know, more of this happening 
and we already see it happening a lot. Um, a lot of the times they allow folks to negotiate it down. They allow people uh, to basically spend a year on sort of like unofficial probation, you know, like we're not going to charge you now, but yeah. if you do anything in the next year, we reserve the right to bring the charges back. So they're kind of using the statute of limitations as a way to create a fake probationary period for people and yeah. like keep the threat of arrest over you. So, you know, just remember that like the law isn't here to protect you. It's here to protect the people in power. And this just feeds directly into capital. that one. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of someone in power who is being protected by the law, let's talk about Ed Buck, Democratic mega donor, yep. Uh, yep. Uh, West Hollywood, former city councilman, right? Or he ran for city council. I can't remember. I don't think he was actually elected, but I think he ran for it. Yeah. But the guy has bundled money for a lot of prominent Democrats, held a lot of hoity-toity parties for uh, very wealthy people and powerful people, and also had uh, some really fucked up stuff going on in his personal life. Uh, so That's apparently there are some new charges that he's, he, there are some new charges that may be coming uh, down the line that have to do with human trafficking uh, array, uh, related to one of the deaths at his place. But let's go ahead and kind of like run through uh, the fact that Ed Buck yeah. is still out and about and not under arrest. Yeah. So despite the fact that two black men both died of drug overdoses within six months of one another inside of the West Hollywood apartment of prominent Democratic political donor Ed Buck, the police have still refused to arrest him and DA Jackie Lacey has so far failed to file any charges against him. On June 27th, 2018, just over a year ago, Jamel Moore died in Buck's apartment after Buck apparently paid him to fly to Los Angeles to engage in, quote, commercial sex acts, according to a lawsuit that was filed by Moore's mother, Letitia Nixon. Uh, and and January, I should mention that the, the, mm -hmm. the Gamel Moore case is the one where they're looking at human trafficking charges because Correct. Ed Buck paid for his plane ticket from Texas to Los Angeles um, in this kind of very strange scheme that kind of points to Ed Buck's weird sexual predilections. Yeah. Uh, extremely predatory sexual predilections. Uh, so then in January of this year, Timothy Dean was also found dead in Buck's apartment, again with a drug overdose being the root cause of his death. Um, earlier this year, Letitia Nixon and Black Lives Matter activists turned in thousands of petition signatures demanding that District Attorney Jackie Lacey take action on prosecuting Ed Buck. To date, nothing has come of that demand. Moore's family has now also brought a lawsuit against Buck that alleges, according to NBC4, quote, wrongful death, sexual battery, hate violence, drug dealer liability, negligence, infliction of emotional distress, and two violations of civil rights, end quote. And we should mention that, you know, the, the drug over overdoses in both cases were uh, methamphetamine, which Correct. apparently Injected. Buck liked to inject into his partners. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, in Gamel Moore's diaries. Watch what uh, was going on. It was. Yeah. Well, and, so and Jamel Moore's diary sort of lays out the fact that this wasn't completely consensual. Like this wasn't something that Jamel Moore was asking for, but something that Ed yeah. Buck foisted upon him. Um, the him the diary. And. Yeah, and the, the diary entries that have been released are just absolutely heartbreaking uh -huh. because Jamel Moore was, uh, uh, you know, had housing instability, uh, really struggled to get his feet underneath him and create Extremely stability boring. for himself in L.A., and Ed Buck was kind of held up as a place for young black men who were down on their luck to go to, to get some stability, to get some financial help, and it seems to have come with this very weird... Uh, <sighs> 
I don't want to say prostitution, um, but it had this very strange sexual component to it. And it really seemed like these young men and, and Jamel Moore is not the first young man to be tied to Buck in this way. Um, there are other people that may have died in the same way that, that we don't know about. And Jasmine Kanick has done a lot of reporting on trying to uncover exactly what Ed Buck has gotten up to in his many years of doing this. But he really preyed on these young men who are in a, a very vulnerable situation. And it's really in a, a terribly racialized context because they were all young, often homeless black men. And Ed Buck was a very wealthy white man with political connections and allowed him to escape prosecution for many years, despite like these two deaths happening within a year of each other. So... Uh, community activists are definitely wanting to see some action here. Uh, at the same time, the sheriff's department, which is the law enforcement in West Hollywood, uh, does not seem like they're really gung ho to arrest this guy. Um, and that unfortunately seems very in line with the way that the LA County Sheriff's office operates across the city. I mean, it's, it's such a gross injustice. It's just a gross, gross injustice. And it continues to, linger and there is I, I mean there's no closure for these families there's no they've, they've been so deeply wronged by this man and they get nothing out of this and all it is is torment and these uh, I mean it's just such a yeah. disaster that we we sit there and allow wealthy individuals, wealthy connected individuals like this man to just act with complete impunity for years. And there have been rumors about what he is up to and multiple bodies that are purported to have been connected with, with what he's up to. But it, it, I mean, it's all, it's all alleged. There's no hard evidence connecting a, a number of these things to him, but you know, in these two circumstances, within six months of one another, they were both found in his apartment and he wasn't able to get them out of there or get them into a car down the street or anything else. And it seems damning, but nothing is coming out of it. And <sighs> Jackie Lacey needs to do better. Yeah. Jackie, Jackie Lacey needs to go and needs to be replaced by somebody who will actually bring justice for these families, justice for these victims. And come on guys, we gotta, we gotta flip that seat. Yeah. In 2020. Yeah. And, uh, there will be some challengers for Jackie Lacey coming down the pipe and I'm sure we'll talk about them when they actually Good. announce, uh, so let's uh, let's uh, sort of wrap this section of uh, cops, you guys, because we will be coming back to it. Uh, and let's move on to another very happy, happy topic. Uh, the climate Yay. crisis and how California is absolutely failing at protecting anyone from the uh, absolute catastrophe that is headed our way because we're getting into wildfire season again. Yep. So earlier today, Friday, July 12th, uh, Governor, Gav Governor Gavin Newsom, I keep wanting to Gavinator. say Gavinator. It's really upsetting. <laughs> the Gavinator signed into law a bill that will create a multi-billion dollar fund to help pay for wildfire li liabilities that are owed by the utilities that operate within this state. The bill, AB 1054, arrived on the governor's desk Thursday following a 63 to 8 vote in the assembly that came just three days after the bill passed through the Senate. The signing of the bill into law comes under intense pressure from Wall Street to shore up the balance sheets of our state's troubled utilities. Speaking on the bill, Newsom said that, quote, 
I want to thank the legislature for taking thoughtful and decisive action to move our state toward a safer, affordable, and reliable energy future, provide certainty for wildfire victims, and continue California's progress toward meeting our clean energy goals. That's that's an interesting set of words he said there. Yeah, it's unclear exactly how this bill is going to impact clean energy in the state. Um, Outside, of course, uh, clearing up the financial responsibilities of the utilities in regard to their complete negligence and allowing them to focus on clean energy production. Well, especially because we passed SB 100, which requires them to have 100% renewables by 2045. (laughs) Like they were already obligated to hit that goal before (sighs) AB 1054. Uh, But AB 1054 has like some other fun stuff that will definitely not make people mad. (laughs) Yeah. So rate payers are going to be paying uh, a whopping $10.5 billion over the coming 15 years. Uh, And this is happening by the uh, state basically extending an existing charge that's already showing up on our bills. And it's going to cover the estimated damages from fires in the coming years, though there's a bit of an issue with that because many folks are saying that the size of the fund is far from sufficient to cover the looming liabilities because we are in a climate crisis and it's just going to keep well, getting and, and worse. Yeah. The, so the, does it sound like well, it's going to so be enough? So the original bill, like when it was originally fo- floated, they were saying the insurance fund would have to be $40 billion, which is the, the annual budget of the state of California. Mm-hmm. They've slashed it down to like $21 billion uh, over the next 15 years, half of which you know we're going to be paying. Um, and that they get that by yeah. extending a fee that we're already paying to sort of cover this sort of stuff. But there's no way this is going to cover it. I think last year's fire damage cost $10 billion. This year's wildfire season is going to be at least as bad, you know, and we still have the town of paradise. Like there are basically 90,000 people who don't have anywhere to live. And when they were living in a Walmart parking lot, black Friday rolled around. And so the cops up there showed up and kicked everyone out of their tents and said, you can't stay at the Walmart parking lot where you've been living because your city burned down. So this is like, we have climate refugees in California right now. We have, climate refugees at our border. We just don't have a a government that's acting like this is a super urgent issue where people are like literally dying and losing their livelihoods. You know, 85 people died in the campfire, most of them because that fire moved so quickly, they couldn't escape in time. The fires we have burn a lot hotter and a lot more intense. And before I get like too far off the beaten path on this one, you know, $20 billion over, over the next 10 years is not enough. Like we're still going to end up paying for this right. and it's, it's not going to get fixed soon enough. PG&E has talked about putting some of their power lines underground to stop this from happening. Something they could have done decades ago and good. they said, no, it's too expensive. Yeah. And it's, it's just negligent business oh. decision after negligent business decision. And knowing that the state of California is going to have to bail them out. Like the state of California is not going to allow people to go without power. They can't. We need uh, power for hospitals, yeah. for schools, for like all of the stuff that runs our society. Yep. So allowing PG&E to stop functioning effectively isn't going to work. There are some other options to do that, but this bill also cuts that out at the knees. Correct. So this is this is one of those situations where people, you know, looking back at the 2008 financial crisis, when everyone was talking about like too big to fail, right? It's the same thing that happens here. These are too critical to fail. So they are not allowed to fail. And the fact that we're, you know, we, the public 
are expected to subsidize the speculation and the corporate greed and the negligence and malfeasance of these corrupt administrators who just clearly don't give a shit about the safety of the public in this state is absurd. It is completely absurd that this is the way that like business has operated for decades and is going to continue to operate because our legislature and our governor have no backbone for holding these folks to account and refusing to bail them out and instead I mean, and it doesn't, them. That's what needs to be happening. And, it's and not it what's doesn't hurt that uh, PG&E throws around tens of thousands of dollars every year behind a lot okay. of Incumbents like they they understand how to buy loyalty. <sighs> so yeah. Anyway, getting back on topic of real quick for like the actual legislation, uh, the bill is very complicated. Uh, let me read a quick excerpt from uh, the fantastic reporting from Taryn Luna uh, in the LA Times. Quote, the Newsom administration has argued that the law protects ratepayers from potential price spikes by ensuring Edison doesn't go belly up. As a condition of participation in the fund, the bill requires PG&E to exit its bankruptcy case by next year without raising rates on customers. PG&E would also have to pay off its claims from 2017 and 2018 wildfires to join the fund, a measure wildfire survivors groups praised during the legislative hearings this week, end quote. Uh, one other thing that's worth noting here is that this bill is going to absolutely severely limit, and in the sense of limit, I mean completely curtail, the ability of municipalities to set up local power providers, which seems to be a direct response to the efforts of San Francisco Mayor London Breed to municipalize the PG&E assets within the San Francisco city slash county limits. By the way, they're like city and county being the exact same size is really weird to me because in LA it's like a one to three yeah. ratio thing, but no, but anyway. it, the, the whole stopping cities from municipalizing their grids is a direct attack on a renewable future and a sustainable future because we need to have more democratic control over how we produce and deliver energy. Uh, and PG and E and the rest of the utilities basically getting to bully their way in and say, no, no cities can't make choices about how they want their power to work is a really cynical and an attempt here and also seems to just set us up for more disaster down the line. You know, PG&E is the largest utility in the state. I believe it's the largest utility in the country. Uh, and they've done a terrible job of maintaining so. that infrastructure across all of California. Yes, they have. But uh, on a sort of a hopeful note here, uh, it looks like some billionaires are actually putting their money where their mouth is in terms of Extinction Rebellion and other climate protesters. So yes. let's talk about that one, because, uh, Chris, we might actually get paid. <laughs> yeah, you and I are not going to be paid. Uh, but this is probably, <laughs> sorry to break it to you, but this is definitely the most feel-good story that we've covered uh, potentially ever in this podcast. So, uh, yeah, some fantastically wealthy philanthropists, including Eileen Getty, the same Getty that you're imagining, the incredibly wealthy oil family, the one that set up those museums and that villa and they all had that the stuff gun house everywhere. Yes, they do. It's it's this is a crazy family with an incredibly crazy history. Uh, but apparently one of them has been uh, emotionally touched by the uh, looming disaster for well, the I gotta species. say this is so they I, I gotta up, say this is also kind mm -hmm. of in line with uh, 
uh, Governor Jay Inslee's run for president because he decided to run for president when his uh, mansion in, in uh, Malibu burned down in the Woolsey fire. So we we finally understood how to get billionaires to like get on board with the crisis, and that's to burn down their <laughs> effing houses. Yeah, we'll touch more on that in a minute. So apparently the philanthropists were inspired to launch this fund by the actions of Swedish teenager Greta Thunberg, who is fantastic, uh, as well as the actions of the Extinction Rebellion protesters in UK in April, uh, who also are absolutely amazing. Everyone should go out there and watch the videos of what they did, like when they took over the trains and said, hey, we also we we. we, awesome. we also glued ourselves to the globe at uh, Universal Studios. Uh, yeah. That was pretty fun. That is fun. But at the same time, like having an 80 year old dude sitting on top of a train and refusing to get down. Even yeah, more generational fun. warfare guys, isn't. I mean, they generational warfare isn't completely true. There's like a, a decent minority of old folks out there who are just radical folks. AF. Yes. And we love them so much. Um, but yeah, basically like these, these protesters, the extinction rebellion protesters over in the UK back in April, they were shutting down the core of London, the whole, like the, the city, I believe it was the financial district. Like that core was shut down for like the whole day, multiple days. Like that just kept happening and they are awesome. So, uh, Trevor Nielsen, He's been leading up the creation of the fund. Uh, he is a, uh, a, a an investor and a very wealthy philanthropist. Uh, again, he's working alongside Rory Kennedy, who is the daughter of Robert Kennedy, and Eileen Getty, as previously mentioned. Bill McKibben, uh, the author, environmentalist, and the creator of 350.org, is on the fund's advisory board alongside David Wallace-Wells, who wrote the international bestseller, uninhabitable earth a spokesperson for extinction rebellion welcomed the move telling the guardian newspaper that quote it's a signal that we are coming to a tipping point in the past philanthropy has often been about personal interest but now people are realizing that we are all in this together and putting their money toward our collective well-being end quote so as mentioned earlier, Nielsen apparently had quite an epiphany related to climate change last year when he was forced to flee from the wildfires in California. Quote, something about throwing my two-year-old and wife in the car and evacuating from the worst fire in the history of Southern California brought the issue into a new type of focus, end quote. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, uh, I don't, I don't mean to laugh too derisively, but the whole, <laughs> I didn't care about this until it directly affected me is just not a great <laughs> look. You know, the same thing with like, it's why Empathy. I'm skeptical of Inslee's run, you know? And also there are other ways to help than running for president. Like if you're a wealthy person and you want to do something about climate change, don't run for president. Give your money to young people. Yeah. Give your money to the activists. Give your money to the folks who are trying to fight for this change. Give your money to Mike Gravel and get him on the Oh, no, he's on. He he made it. That has happened, hopefully. I mean, he made it, but they're going to find Yeah, true enough. Off of there. But anyway, uh, to Mr. Nielsen, thank you. Uh, And here's what we have to say. Welcome to the resistance. Yeah, I do want to say also like Bill McKibben uh, came to the road to a Green New Deal, which I hosted uh, back in March with uh, Sunrise Movement L.A. And that was pretty cool uh, because he's been one of my favorite environmental authors and activists uh, since I was in high school. 
because he wrote a seminal piece in the nation talking about the problem with objectivity in journalism when it comes to climate denialism. Like we have this, you know, kind of a B standard. Like I say, the sky is blue and you say, no, the sky is like pink and there's no way to like determine which of us should get a platform. Like the news media just says, Oh, well these people disagree. What do we think about that? And that's not the way objectivity should work. And that was kind of, you know, that essay came out when I was like a sophomore in high school and it really framed the way I looked at and think about media uh, because as the climate crisis has accelerated through my life and we still have Exxon funding People who say, no, the climate change isn't happening, that, you know, anthropogenic climate change isn't a big thing, it's not that bad, it could be cosmic rays, we have no idea what's doing it. You know, that media narrative hasn't been tamped down. Oh, God, the cosmic rays. Oh, my God, people misinterpreted that so badly. I want to go off on that for a second. So, if anybody says cosmic rays disprove anthropogenic climate change, just A, slap them, and B, say, no, what that article says is that they may have some effect on cloud cover, which may drive certain types of rainstorms in a certain area of the planet, and that it could have affect climate in addition to other things like nothing in the article and just to be clear we do not actually condone physical violence but i mean yeah and and it's it's one where like the the way the right wing is selling that article is completely disingenuous uh completely (sighs) misses the point and takes the researchers and the scientists completely out of context and it's it's i never would it's so painful like i've mentioned i read zero hedge every day just to like see what the crazy people are up to and that was at the top (laughs) of the headlines and as soon as i clicked on it i was like this is gonna hurt my brain like this is gonna hurt my brain a lot and tyler durden the guy who runs zero hedge which he's named himself after the the fight club uh villain so you know this is a guy working with like a full deck of cards but he he just immediately went off on how this disproves all of this climate science that has happened and that it's not co2 concentration and it's just it like anytime somebody who says they don't really believe in science tells you science disproved something you can immediately mm-hmm. just call bullshit on mm-hmm. that uh, all right well thank you bushido for your service and your sacrificing of many brain cells in the effort to understand what the hell these people I mean, are I'm thinking, you know, maybe I should buy into gold. They keep telling me gold is really good, you know? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> no. Wait, are they trying to sell you the Iraqi dinars No, as well? no, no, no. They're, they're not quite that shady. <laughs> but no, I mean, the gold is, you know, gold is a tried and true grift. And like gold is always valuable for some reason. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like if you actually want to, mm-hmm. if you actually want a valuable mineral, get yourself lithium. Because all of the lithium that has ever been created in the yeah. universe was created in the Big Bang. There will be no more lithium created in the universe. Gold, on the other hand, every star that... we're going to use it all up in And gold, every time a star explodes, which happens like every hour or something in like the visible universe, Mm -hmm. every time that happens, it's just shooting out planets worth of gold. So like gold, not all that valuable of a commodity. Lithium, lithium is super valuable. Now, something... Yeah, but I mean, until we have like our asteroid mining luxury gay space communism, like it's you know, still relatively limited on earth, but your point is extremely Make the expanse a reality. Um, But talking about another, (laughs) talking about another commodity. Minus all the class warfare. (laughs) Talking about another commodity that is way overvalued and way overlooked at. Let's talk about the boom in fracking under Gavin Newsom uh, that (laughs) <laughs> that he didn't even notice was happening. The invisible boom in he fracking. He didn't, like, he was exactly. asleep at the wheel. So, so what, what happened with his top oil regulator? It, yes. 
<sighs> so on Thursday this week, Governor Newsom ordered the Secretary of Natural Resources to fire one Mr. Ken Harris, the state's top oil regulator. The firing comes in the wake of revelations undercovered by the Palm Springs Desert Sun, which apparently is associated with like USA Today, alongside watchdogs that showed that the pace of fracking permit issuance had more than doubled since Newsom took office without his knowledge and that seven supervisors who report to Harris own significant shares in major oil companies. And those were the same companies that they were supposed to be helping. I apologize, John Cox. I should have endorsed you. (laughs) No, no. I mean, this is oversight and it's gross and it's horrible. But at the same time, like, can you just imagine how much worse it would be under John Cox? Like this would just be like, like this is the exact kind of thing that we'd be seeing all the time. Um, oh wait, but, yeah, but, so but under John the Cox, the these guys would all have to wear like the NASCAR jackets that like show their sponsors because that was his other big thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's get back to the story. Uh, can we just like give them a, a, a you know sprinkle oil on top of them by like dumping it like at the end of care? They can all go to a, uh, a every single. They can time. all go to a, a fracking water drinking party at Hinkenluber's house. yeah so harris was the head of the division of oil gas and geothermal resources known as dogger d-o-g-g-r uh apparently nearly half of the 2300 well permits that had been issued so far in 2019 have benefited oil companies that were invested in by agency officials in question damn court who is the president of consumer watchdog yeah right Adam Scow, the senior consumer advocate with the same nonprofit, and Brooke Lenker, executive director of Frack Tracker Alliance, wrote a letter concerning the matter that said that, quote, we have uncovered outrageous conflicts of interest at the state agency charged with oil and gas well approval and inspections that endanger the public. Oil regulators should not be invested in the same oil companies that they regulate, end quote. And uh, great catch here, guys. Uh, Court Scow Lenker, you guys, seriously, this is fantastic. Cheers to you for catching this completely gross and absurd. How the hell did this happen? Conflict of interest and for demanding that the public's best interest be held in higher regard than corporate greed. Cheers to you. And also what the hell Newsom? Come on. Yep. It's frustrating. Yep. So that is pretty much all we got on the climate stuff because uh, we're facing an ever-looming existential threat and uh, it keeps getting worse because people continue to put the corporate greed over the public good and this this is what happens and then we have to f- deal with the consequences of it because they just keep pumping high-pressure water and chemicals into the ground and poisoning the earth, poisoning the water, poisoning the air, making it more difficult for us to breathe and live Every single day. Fun. Yep. Now I'm back down to basically. Yeah. I I mean, the the other thing is like none of the fracking permits that have been uh, approved appear like uh, appear that they're going Mm -hmm. to be revoked. So that fracking is still going to happen. Uh, Yeah. Which we. Those investments. Well, and also like one of the major problems with fracking is it uses an insane amount of water. We're getting ready to head into like. A water crunch where people don't have enough water. Again. We're negotiating with the four other yep. states that use the Colorado so that we have enough water to grow our food. And these guys want to use all of that water to pull really energy intensive oil out of the ground because it takes a lot of energy 
to get that oil out of the ground, to refine it, to turn it into natural gas, to ship it across the country, to rather ship it across the world. Because remember, a lot of the natural gas that we produce here in the U.S. doesn't get used here. We ship it to other regions of the world because that's more economically viable than using it here. Like the Phillips 66 plant, the Exxon plant, like they're not uh, refining oil that we burn in California. They're refining oil that we ship to yeah. China. Uh, just so economically broken and stupid. Yeah, and this, and it ties in with what's going on with like the Aliso Canyon gas storage facility up in CD12 that we'll, you know, doubtless be talking about again because that election is still ongoing and we really hope that Lurian's going to win. But what ends up happening at that gas storage facility, they don't even use it to produce power here. They are purely using that facility to just pump gas into the ground when it's cheap. And then they store it there until it either leaks out because they don't know what the hell they're doing in terms of maintenance or when they can get some money out of it. So when the price goes up, then they pump some more out. They ship it off to wherever it is that's you know demanding it. And then in the interim, it just leaks and leaks and leaks and poisons the air, the water, the land for people for generations to well, come. I mean, we are going to be continuing to deal with the climate crisis surrounding the Aliso Canyon gas storage facility for decades. Well, and there's there's also, uh, we just found out that Exxon, around the same time that Aliso Canyon was happening, had a massive natural gas pipeline explosion in the middle of the desert. So, like, nobody was directly affected because it was out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, But it cost us a billion dollars because Aliso Canyon was shut down because of the leak at the time. It caused a crunch on natural gas reserves in the state. Like, as much as we're being sold natural uh, gas as a freedom molecule... Uh, that's not it's true. It's not clean energy. And it energy. explodes and it's dangerous and it keeps doing this. So it's, the more we hear about fracking, the more you, the more we know like our leaders aren't solving this because unless, you know, they're saying, unless the sentence is fracking is no more in the state of California, it's the wrong move. Yeah. All right. So. Uh, <laughs> Gotta ban it. Yep. Gotta ban it. Uh, so let's move on to uh, talking about some uh, updates from the assembly because there is some totally not bad stuff happening. Uh, not not the greatest stuff, uh, but some of the tenant bills that we've been following earlier are still winding their way through the state Senate. Uh, so let's see what's going on there. Yep. So AB 1482, which we talked about before, has now passed through its first committee in the state Senate and is one step closer to actually passing and hopefully becoming law. The bill, which currently is capping rent increases at 7% per year, um, in addition to CPI, and of course, sunsets in just three years, because why make something that's actually super effective in the long term and permanent? It now includes, which is good, uh, provision to protect against no-cause evictions, which effectively means that we're now wrapping the intended regulatory effects of AB 1481 into AB 1482. So this is like kind of the housing bill package that was a little bit Uh, less ambitious than it could have been. It's like it's like a quarter of it ish, and it's like super watered down. Uh, definitely not the kind of thing that tenants rights groups were actually like demanding, but I mean, it's better than nothing. So, uh, so it's also worth noting that the rent protections in AB 1482 only apply to units that are not already covered by local rent control rules. Uh, it also does not apply to homes that were constructed within the last 10 years. 
And again, it expires in just three years. So this is undeniably good news for tenants in California, but it is depressing how watered down this bill is. Uh, compared to where it was when it first started out and that initial promise of like, this is fantastic. It's good news. These things like there's all these bills in the Senate, in the assembly, like all this good stuff for tenant protections. And now here well, we and are. And also how hard we have to fight just for basic stuff like this. And this is going to tie into to what 7% is still. Yeah. No, it's, oh. it's, it's, you know, and, and sundowning it in three it's years bullshit. because the, the California bullshit. Apartment Association and the California Association of Realtors are like, no, no, we need to remain fabulously wealthy. Landlords matter more than tenants. You know, oh, oh. my God, that, that wait, wait, comic wait, wait, wait. today of the, the tenant protections as a, a hydra coming out uh-huh. of the sea and the brave realtor <laughs> where, wielding a sword and shield to protect, like, landlords and homeowners pretty much tells you everything you need to know about, like, what the real estate lobby thinks of you. Like, as you being a but person who wait. needs a place to live are some monstrous entity to the people who only see you but, as a profit if you listen to NPR and if you listen to like, I think it was on the New York times podcast this morning. If you listen to them, uh, maybe it's that the way that they're targeting me, but the ads that they played at their breaks today were sponsored by the realtors, like the national realtor realtors group who were out there saying, Hey, these are terrifying statistics related to your rent increases. We're the experts on this stuff. We're all about protecting communities. That I was just like, what the fuck are you people talking about? You're out here protecting communities? No, no, you are not. You are literally funding the dismantling of communities, the displacement of folks, the gentrification of these communities, all for profit. Let's not forget. Uh, let's not just, forget that the National Association uh, of Realtors threw a bunch, six figures worth of money behind uh, Measure e. EE. Like these are folks who are like, we protect communities by making sure that your schools are underfunded, and <laughs> if you try and get don't around Prop schools, Thirteen, don't we're going to come heavy. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Again, this is undeniably good news for tenants in California, but it's so much less than it yeah. should have been. Well, this actually is going to tie into my reading series, uh, which we have a doozy <laughs> for you today. Uh, so this is kind of my ongoing series of Go finding on. things that you know uh, are published on the internet against everybody's better judgment, and just make me <laughs> incredibly mad. And so I just yell at them for the last like twenty minutes of this podcast. So. And then I get to laugh at it and sit here and color color commentary. We kind of we kind of swap roles for this one. So uh, today, uh, the 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 article I'm talking about today is published by Kevin Drum on Mother Jones, uh, and Kevin Drum is listed as a political blogger. Which you know already you're thinking, okay, mm. this is uh, this is going to hurt a lot. Uh, today's article by him is titled "Quote Hit Me with That Gal." Washington right can't solve a housing crisis that doesn't exist end quote oh my don't worry it's all down here from here here. uh let me just let me go on down to skid row and talk to the folks at la can and tell them that in fact guys don't worry about it the work that you've been doing for the last 20 years it's not 
It's not that important. It's, this is all just a figment of our imaginations. It hasn't been going on forever since, you know, Prop 6 and, Pro, and Article 34 and Prop 13 and all these things got us into this complete disaster of complete unaffordability for everyone up and down the state. Don't worry. It's just a, it's just a figment of our imagination. So uh, this is so Kevin Drum was inspired <laughs> to write this by an article that was in the New York Times today by Elizabeth Cohen. And he he gives a block quote here, but I'm just going to read the last couple lines of of Elizabeth Cohen's article, uh, which is, quote, this has risen Mm -hmm. up demand for what remains with a predictable result that a third of all households spend more than 30 percent of their income for shelter. In many prospering cities, large numbers pay more than 50 percent, end quote. So Kevin starts off real strong. I feel great way to start an article is I feel. So anyways, quote, I feel like this stuff is manufactured in an underground factory somewhere and shipped out randomly to newspapers across the country. Does anybody even bother to compare it to the facts anymore? Let's start with a claim that rents are rising much faster than income. Is that true? End quote. So then uh, Kevin yes. puts up a, a graph here that, that compares nominal rent versus nominal income. But it's not actually comparing nominal mm-hmm. rent versus nominal income. It's comparing the rate of increase uh-huh. between the two. So already there's a problem where he's not specifying what income has been versus what rent has been in like actual numbers. Yeah, but just comparing the derivative. Yeah, just comparing the rate of increase over time. And guess what? The graph shows that rent is rising faster than income. Like significantly, at least about 5%, as all of the numbers say. But for for Kevin, that's, you know, that's not a significant increase enough to convince him that rent is out of control compared to income. Um, It's also like it's just a very misleading graph and one that he completely disingenuously misreads and then tries to use as the basis for his entire article. Uh, He continues. Also, literally, if those lines don't overlap. No, they don't. And, you know. If they don't overlap and rent is the one that's uh, above income, we're in a worsening situation. If those two lines literally do not have income going above the rent increase, when you're looking at that derivative, that means that housing is becoming more unaffordable. Diff, like Just straight up. If you can't read that graph, you have literally no business writing a damn this thing. Is- about the unaffordability this of This is housing. why we invented the journalistic category of blogger. So, like, we can have people publish things without, like, actually being journalists. And Kevin Drum fits Come very on, Mother Jones, you can do better than this. Uh, so he continues, quote, Nope, this isn't true. Rent has risen only slightly more than income since 2001 and has risen more slowly than income since uh, 2010. Next up is median home price in some uh, uh, 200 cities is $1 million. Uh, he continues, quote, that's true, but pretty meaningless. Mm-hmm. Click the link. I'm not going to click the link. What? And the first. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Hold on. The median home cost of being a million dollars is, quote, somewhat no, meaningless. No, no, pretty meaningless. Pre- oh, oh, pretty meaningless. Big difference there. What the hell is he on about? Yeah, well, so so this one is Man, it's fun this one is pretty commentary. fun, right? Because his claim. <laughs> so what he goes on to say is, uh, uh, 
The first example is Baltimore Forest in or Biltmore Forest in North Carolina. This is a tiny enclave of 1,300 on the outskirts okay. of Asheville that's built around old Biltmore Estate and the Biltmore Forest Country Club. It's millionaire country, just like most of those other cities what? on the list. In fact, a full quarter of them are just subdivisions what? of a single metro area, San Francisco and Santa Clara. So he's, he's made the astounding observation that a lot of people uh. live in cities and a lot of wealthy people live in cities. And in fact, that's where <laughs> most homes are constantly concentrated are around cities. Now, he, he goes on to say, and this is something that's, that's kind of uh, amazing to me. Oh, no. Uh, and needless mm -hmm. to say, that $1 million figure hasn't been uh, adjusted for inflation over the years. It never is when somebody wants a scary headline. So his argument here is that a million dollars isn't actually that much money. And just to, like, sort of, you know, say... You know, what, what does that actually mean? I went and looked up, you know, what mm -hmm. the median net worth of U.S. families are. And the median net worth of a U.S. family uh, 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 in the uh, entire uh. country is $97,300. Which means that literally half of the families in this country have less than... Oh, yeah, and... So a million dollars is still a shitload of well, here's, money. Here's the fun thing, Chris. For you and my demographic, which is like, you know, 45 to 35, oh, yeah, it's uh -huh. $59,800. Uh -huh. hey, I am below that. Oh, Thank okay. <laughs> All right. Well, for, for your young ass demographic under 35, it's $11,000 <laughs> is the median net worth. Ah, uh, uh, shit. Yeah. That's insane. But remember, he's assuming that most people out there could afford to own a million dollar home. So a million dollars, that's a trivial oh, amount of money. It's no. not a whole lot, right? It's just, it's, you know, tiny amount of money, tiny amount of money. Uh, now he goes on to compare. I mean, it, you just have it bouncing around in your, your, you know, it's the loose change in your, in your Maserati and your Bentley and you, you shake it out of your G500 jet. And, uh, and you pull it together. There you go. That's your, there's your million bucks to yeah, buy your you house. Just, you, like no big know, deal. It's just like Donald Trump. You get dad to give you a small million dollar loan and you just pull yourself <laughs> right out of that hole. It'll be fine. Now he bootstraps now people. He, he goes on to show a couple of graphs. One that shows housing inventory estimates uh, between 2001 and 2018, uh, which shows that there is a 109% supply of total housing units per household. So we have more houses than we have households. Now, just I mean, his interpretation yeah. of this is there is no housing crisis because we have enough houses. His take isn't people are homeless and dying on the streets of American cities because housing costs too much, which is the correct take. His take is, oh, no, we have enough also, houses. So therefore, housing isn't in crisis, despite like. I mean, does is he is he suggesting that we like just start taking houses from people who own more than one? I mean. And then just giving them to people who don't have it, houses. He, he never pulls together. I have heard that take before. I didn't expect it. Well, from he doesn't him. pull together a, a coherent uh, uh, thought that way. Oh. The, the next graph that he shows is the Too rental bad. vacancy rate from 1960 to 2018. And this is a kind of interesting graph. So we actually see between like okay. in the 1960s to the 1980s, we see that the vacancy up. rate drops below. 7%, which is pretty significant. Like that's a pretty low vacancy rate. Now in the 1990s, it begins to trend up more as we shift to more single family homes and there's more like giveaways to developers. Uh, and there's also kind of people okay. moving to cities in mass. But then in 2012 ish, like it about, it, it's hard to tell on the graph that hash marks are four years apart, but around 2012, 2013, we suddenly see vacancy rates begin to dip again below 7%. Now, 
one would think, oh, that's a good thing. That yeah. means everyone has a place to live. Until you remember that there was kind of a certain business model that started getting pushed out around that time. And that would be the short-term rental business model, the Airbnb rental uh, model, which we know in Los Angeles caused a slew of LS Act mm -hmm. evictions, caused a slew of illegal and unjust evictions, and also took a whole bunch of rental stock off the market because it was no longer considered yeah. vacant. It was now being used as a short-term rental. Which, that should really not count as, you know, if it's being used for short-term rentals, it's, I mean, when it comes to a vacancy tax, I really, really, really hope that we in the city of Los Angeles count anything that's used as a short-term rental is still vacant. Hey, we should, but Because we what we're talking about is long-term vacancy, and that's the, that's the thing that measures whether or not people are actually living. Exactly, but that also assumes that people are listing those units as vacant and looking for new renters, which is what they use to determine those, I mean, those statistics. And if you're airbnb it, you're no longer listing that unit as vacant. Uh, but it, to, to... Ban Airbnb. Yeah, to, to, to move on before we get too bogged down in the Airbnb <laughs> thing, uh, dropping down a paragraph, he says, quote, nor has the nation lost 4 million low-rent apartments. What that probably means, uh, though there's no telling really, is that 4 million apartments have crossed some arbitrary threshold defined as low-rent. But if you adjust for inflation... <laughs> Probably nothing much has happened at all. Those apartments are still around and still cost about the same as ever. What? I mean, no, that's we, we lose, it's not like an arbitrary in thing. In Los Angeles, HUD has a definition. In Los Angeles, we lose at least 5,000 rent controlled apartments uh -oh. a year. A year. And that's a low <sighs> estimate. Like, there are some estimates that it's as high as 15 or 20,000 a year. From being taken off the market from Ellis Act evictions, from the lack of vacancy decontrol, meaning when somebody moves out, that rent gets mm -hmm. jacked up, which is probably what's happening here. Like yep. these low income apartments stopped being low income because the federal housing subsidies that kept it them low income, the uh, the mm -hmm. rent control and lack of vacancy decontrol, the yeah, the uh, affordable mm -hmm. housing governance, those things expire. Uh, without vacancy control, yep. you can charge whatever you want once you flip tenants. There's a whole bunch of things that feed into this. But I also like his assertion uh, here that nor has the nation lost 4 million low-rent apartments. Like, he doesn't really give a counter-argument or any sort of data to back that up. He's just saying, oh, they didn't knock down those apartments. Like, like it's tell? not like when you moved out of this apartment, the landlord burned it to the ground and salted the ashes, which is apparently what he thinks is meant by lost those apartments, not they no longer are affordable. <laughs> Oh, it gets so much better. This guy is an idiot. Quote, next up, oh my God. a third of all households spend more than 30% of income for shelter. The median household pays about 20% of their income in rent, and that hasn't changed over the past decade. If you go all the way down to the average of the second income quintile, which is about a third of the way from the bottom, average rent has gone up slightly from 32% to 34%, but that's using the median rent. People at that income level mostly pay less than the median, which means that their rent is probably around 20 to 30 percent of their income wait wait yeah wait. I, it's oh my god it's it's does he it's all sorts of did he take statistics no and and, and not only did he not take sp uh. statistics but he also misses like very basic stuff like so uh based on uh let me find this real quick uh 
Yeah, so based on a, a, a Pew study, uh, right now in, in 2017, the latest numbers that they have, 31.5% of renters are rent burdened. That means you're paying over 30% of your rent. We know in Los Angeles, 60% yep. of renters are rent burdened and 30% of renters Correct. are severely rent burdened, RC. meaning you're paying more than 50% of your rent, in 50% yeah, of your income in rent. Now, here in LA, in 2019, the average rent in Los Angeles is $2,384. That's a lot. Now, if we, if we amortize, or sorry, if we annualize that, so over the course of a year, you will pay $28,608 for that average apartment. The average family income or the median income uh, in Los Angeles for a household is $60,000. So if we divide 28,608 by $60,000, we get 0.47%, or 0.47, which is 47%. So that means oh. you're paying 47% of your income in rent for uh, for an average apartment here in LA, if you're making the median income, which a lot of people aren't. Like, that's still like 50% of people are making that, or above 50% of people are making that. That means 50% of people are making less than that. And we know in Los Angeles, 600,000 families are paying 90% of their income in rent. 90%. So this is like... His ability to actually understand what he's talking about falls apart quite a bit here. Now, he goes down in the next paragraph, quote, that accounts for 70% of all households. Some of the rest probably do pay more than 30% of their income and in rent, but not all of them. The real number is most likely a quarter of households or less. No, the, the, the real number is 31.7%. We just went over that. Uh, Kevin, please try and keep up. And more to the point, it hasn't changed other than slightly over the past decade, which is a really bad sign, Kevin. Like the fact that people are consistently rent burdened over a long period of time is not a sign of stability. Oh, my Buddha. No, it's a sign that things are still bad and not getting any better. <sighs> so, he, so to drop down a paragraph, he continues, quote, In other words, virtually nothing in the setup for this op-ed is true. Rents aren't out of control. Housing inventory isn't low. And rent as a percentage of income is about the same as it was 10 years ago. There is no generalized rent crisis in America, which full stop... Uh, everyone disagrees with you. Every bit of data disagrees uh, with you. Like every major city in this country is having issues with eviction and displacement. And it's not just because like landlords like having empty apartments It's because they see renters as a profit center and have absolutely no compunction with kicking somebody out because they think they can make net more money. Continuing on to his last two paragraphs. Quote, now there's no question that a few specific cities have seen big rises. The Bay Area is obviously one. Denver is one. And Seattle is another. We don't have that many big cities, Kevin. Like, there's maybe 20 major cities in this country. Like, the vast majority of population live in a few places. So, like, naming four major cities is a pretty statistically significant part of the American population. Though the market has responded recently in Seattle and housing development is now increasing, the problem was never the amount of houses, Kevin. The problem was how much they cost. Like, his inability to understand the supply-demand dynamic is not what's functioning here is really just upsetting. Quote, but if you look at big cities more broadly, there's not even a generalized urban rent crisis. Oh my God, yes there is. No. Last paragraph, and don't worry, he's going to finish strong. Quote, I would be delighted to improve housing assistance to the poor, who certainly do pay a large percent of their income and in rent. The waiting list for Section 8 housing vouchers, for example, is years long in most cities. And God knows why we should make this program so, more generous. But can we please stop inventing a housing crisis to justify it? 
Los Angeles County has 60,000 people living without permanent shelter. Uh, the city of LA has 38,000 people living without permanent shelter. And those are low ball estimates. Like, and these are people that we know. We're talking 120,000 people cycling, cycling through homelessness every single year or last year. It was hundred. And that's just in one freaking city, just in one region. Now, but no, we do not have a rental crisis of affordability because Kevin Drum said so. It's, he, he then, I'm, it's fun because he got dragged on Twitter, so he had to add a postscript. And his postscript kind of ties this whole thing together in just one of the most fantastic ways you've, you've ever heard. So, quote, one thing worth pointing out is that it's just about impossible to get reliable statistics that compare incomes of the poor to mm. average rents of the poor. There's no question that the poor pay a lot for housing in big cities, but it's hard to say that it's gotten significantly mm. worse over the past decades. It's also hard to say just how much the average uh. poor household pays. No, it's not, Kevin. We got those statistics. We know that 600,000 people in the city of Los Angeles pay more than 90% of their monthly income in rent. We know that what? 30% of renters in the city of LA pay more than 60% of their income in rent. We have those statistics. Uh, like payrolls get reported to the federal government. Rental statistics get reported to the state and local and federal government. Like there are very smart people out there doing this research and they've published papers about it that you can just Google <laughs> just for free, Kevin. It's free on the internet. And it's not even that hard to do the research. And it's kind of amazing that he's gone and cherry picked these graphs and graphs that really don't mean anything. He sort of just like at one point he puts up a graph of the median monthly mortgage payment, which has nothing to do with what he's talking about because the vast majority of people who own their what houses are wealthy rentals? and are white. And the vast majority it of people who are renters in this country are not wealthy and not white. Like we've seen white home ownership go up. We have seen black home ownership go down. We have seen other forms of home ownership about stay the same. And we can kind of understand that like, when we're talking about these issues like housing that are very deeply embedded into the way that our society operates, that we also have to be talking about class, uh, sorry, about race and gender and sexuality. Because if you're gay in the city of Los Angeles, there is a much better chance that you will find yourself unhoused at some point than if you're like a straight white guy with a college education. But he just elides all of that fact. He just sort of lumps renters into one big mass and says like, oh, hey, these people aren't having a, a hard time finding apartments. There's enough apartments. When the question was always, can they afford them? And then even beyond that, can you actually have like the right number of people in an apartment? We can't forget that neighborhoods like Koreatown and Westlake are some of the most overcrowded neighborhoods in the country. We have people who are able to afford these rents because they're not living one person to an apartment. They're living like six people yeah. to an apartment. Ah, yeah. Kevin, this was so dumb and so terrible and everyone <sighs> disagrees with you. Why did you publish this? Why does Mother Jones <laughs> let you publish? I just don't effing get it. Ah. All right. uh, and for just just a quick a quick clarification, you you said that thirty uh, percent of people are paying more than sixty percent of their. You meant fifty percent yeah. of their income. Just as anybody that's fact checking us is going to end up yelling at us about that. So wait, it's what now? Rep uh, repeat that. It's thirty percent of the folks are spending more than fifty percent of their income. Sixty percent of folks are spending more than thirty percent. Thank of their you. Income. Yes, you just you said thirty percent are spending more than sixty percent. Just as like a pedantic. No, no, no. You're right. I, I housing statistics. As, as I'm yelling it's, at you, the, you were on a tirade, yeah. As I'm yelling at the article, I, totally understand. I, I kind of combine those numbers together, but that's a good point. But yeah, the statistics in LA are pretty brutal, and like LA is a little <sighs> bit of an outlier, but not much. Like we're. 
I really want to know what this guy's background is. He's a political really blogger, know. and apparently Mother Jones I, I lets him know. do stuff. He's got a bio. Do you want me to click on the bio and see? <laughs> no, I clicked on it already. It doesn't have anything. It just has all of his articles. It's really That's stupid. not a bio. I know. It just says that he's a blogger for Mother Jones. Oh, Jesus. Did you see what his email address is? Uh, <laughs> it's Cal Pundit. I'm not it's giving you the app, but his, his, his email address is Cal Pundit. So that bodes really well. Oh my God. No, I'm not even going to click on the other ones. I'm not even going to click on the other ones. The top headline I see is Trump still looking hard for the best people. And I don't even want to know what that one's about. I don't even want to No, Not today, Satan. Uh, all right. Anyway, so this was this one worked out pretty uh, pretty long. We had a lot of news to catch up on because uh, mm-hmm. there was a lot going on, um, and we took the week off. So hopefully next week we'll be back down to a little bit more rational like episode size. Uh, as far as stuff to do, I don't know, man. We're kind of on a roll with these of being like at least an hour and a half long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> editing what is that <sighs> uh but <laughs> but yeah uh, i i don't have anything coming up on the agenda well i like i mentioned there's going to be the uh nlg training for court watch coming up on the 16th you can check out the ground game facebook page uh or check out the national lawyers guild los angeles's facebook page to go ahead and rsvp for that and show up and learn how to do court watch uh we've got ground game meetings every 7 30 in hollywood we would really love you to show up. Uh, also, the CD12 election is coming up. It's going to be August 13th. Mail-in ballots are going out very, very shortly. One month from tomorrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you want to get out there and knock some doors, there are uh, door knocking and Do phone they. banking shifts every weekend and every weekday. Uh, we could definitely use you uh, working the phones, knocking on doors, getting voters out there to vote, getting them specifically to vote for Lorraine Lundquist. Uh, from what I've heard, a hot tip on the political press sheet, uh, most of John Lee's canvas team has defected to Lorraine Lundquist so you know which way this one's trending and hopefully like Lorraine beat John last time she is racking up endorsement after endorsement she would be an amazing addition to our city council so if you are in CD12 make sure to vote for Lorraine Lundquist if you're not in CD12 get out there get some practice for 2020 because we're going to need everyone knocking on doors making calls talking to each other Uh, if we're going to beat Trump and the GOP it's going to take all of us, and we can totally do that. Uh, Chris, do you want to... Yeah. And we do also need to beat the corporate Democrats just to point that out, because they sell us out almost as bad as the Republicans, like 90% of the time, so just keep that That's, in mind. That is a very good point, too, but Chris, you want to take us out? <sighs> yes, so as always, if you guys have anything that you want us to be made aware of or publicize, uh, just shoot us an email at podcast at groundgamela.org. Uh, hit us up on Facebook, send us a message there, hit us up on Twitter. We've got at Bushido squirrel or at Christopher Roth. There's two R's in there, uh, in the middle of it. And, uh, yeah, just, uh, keep on being angry and get out there and show everyone what it is that we're fighting for. Nice. All right. Well, thank you all very much. Have yourselves a lovely week.